Good morning, my name is Harry Chapman and welcome to the second in our series of DTX Talks. These sessions will be taking place with technology leaders over the coming months and covering the overarching topic of preparing technology for the new normal. Our recent surveys, which have reached over 500 tech executives and enterprises, have shown that implementing AI, automation and analytics ethically while managing data in the right way is a topic of growing importance for businesses, particularly at a time where they are under intense scrutiny due to the COVID-19 pandemic. With this in mind, I'm really pleased to be joined by Sir Nigel Shadbolt, co-founder of the Open Data Institute, principal of Jesus College and professor of computer science at Oxford University. Sir Nigel is a global expert in this area and we'll be talking about implementing AI, analytics, and automation ethically in a volatile business environment. Welcome, Sir Nigel. Thank you very much, Harry, thank you. Before I hand over to Sir Nigel for his 15 minutes of remarks, it's important to point out that you should feel free to send questions in via the Q&A box at the bottom, and we'll answer as many of them as we can throughout this morning's session. So Sir Nigel, over to you. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be talking to you this morning. The topic is the challenge of AI, analytics and automation, how to do this ethically in what is, of course, an extraordinarily volatile business environment. It was uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, Lenin who said there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. Well, certainly we've had an extraordinary few months. And perhaps we should just reflect on what COVID-19 is actually showing us at this point. What does our great acceleration in technology, the so-called exponents of change, uh, have to do with this context as well? We are living proof um, this meeting and the tens of thousands of meetings that are going on simultaneously that our technology has become an essential support function in allowing us to continue anything like a semblance of uh, work continuity, uh, exchanges, social and economic between one another. So the, the internet that provides that has been a fundamental piece. The exponents of change I'm referring to here in our network digital society have really been made possible by extraordinary advances in computer power, storage, data, connection speeds. And all of these things have allowed this acceleration to happen. Sometimes it's called the great acceleration. Is this actually uh, as new as we think? It's always worth then reflecting back on history. Um, are these changes so very different? And you might argue in the world of 2020, um, it feels different. But 50 years ago, um, would we have really imagined where we are now? In the 19th century or the first half of the 20th century, there were equally extraordinary changes. There was a pandemic. And yet at the same time as the great Spanish flu, there were breakthroughs in science and engineering that led to the atomic age, that led to the wide-scale development of the biological sciences that have also transformed our world. Uh, a co-author and I touch on many of these exponentials in, a, in the book we wrote, The Digital Ape, and it's well worth reflecting that we have always been disrupted and changed by the technology available to us. But if we look at the way in which the current virus is changing our context 
and our potential future businesses, will it be more of the same? Will it be more of the same? AI hasn't gone away. It's still an extraordinarily potent force, although the focus at the moment is very much on medical sciences and what they might do to, uh, to combat the pandemic. We are aware of the importance of AI and AI algorithms. We are aware of the fact that there is still a deluge of data. I'll come back to the issue whether it's the data we need to combat the virus, but there's an extraordinary amount of it about in other contexts. And of course, the worries around issues to do with surveillance um, are still there. Perhaps we're going to change our attitudes about what we allow um, our personal information to be used for, and I'll come back to that also. Because there has been substantial concern around what is sometimes called cap uh, surveillance capitalism, the fact that so many of our businesses are premised on the collection of data from us as individuals. But we also recognize that in a moment of a public health emergency, data is key to solving that. And we've seen this play out very dramatically in the discussions around contact tracing, apps to try and establish the people you met and the people who have been infected and who you may have become infected by, you know, what does the issue mean about collecting that kind of data reliably and then using it in an ethical way. I think there is a general recognition that in extreme public health contexts, we change the boundaries of what we presume to be the reasonable use of information. And again, right back at the beginning of the 20th century with typhoid outbreaks in the US, there was the notion of an individual's liberty and privacy being suspended for the greater collective good. Typhoid Mary is the classic example of somebody who was a super spreader in New York back in the, uh, in the early 20th century and had to be restrained, literally physically restrained, uh, to stop uh, infections. Now, in a real sense, what we're talking about in the current context is, is finding out what the information can tell us about the potential contact graph, the contact network that is, uh, that is uh, possibly at the root of the transmission of the virus. And as we try and understand how you balance the collective good with individual privacy and liberties, that's a deep ethical question. We may come back to that. And of course, as companies grapple with how much information they, meet, they may, may need to keep to ensure the health and well-being of their workforce and their businesses, it's going to become an issue of direct concern in the boardroom, in the discussions that employers have with their employees. Now, of course, also we may ask when we look at where we are with the current uh, pandemic is, do we have all the data that we needed in the first place? Um, I'm afraid the pandemic is revealing just how complex the data and interdependencies are that we need to respond uh, appropriately to this challenge. It turns out we don't have the data at the level of detail that we might have wished. There are gaps in our coverage. Uh, and sometimes these are gaps that we knew were there. Um, issues about where various sorts of health equipment were issues about what the resourcing and availability of resources were within our health system and other parts of our supply chain logistics. We have been saying for years that we live by data, but in a situation like the pandemic, we see very extraordinary demands on better data. And just 
today we're hearing discussions around whether or not the local authorities who may be charged with implementing local lockdown procedures have all the data they need to actually uh, understand whether they're in such a situation and where the hotspots might be. One of my roles is as chair of the Open Data Institute and in that context we've been looking at this whole idea of what a healthy data ecosystem needs to be because any AI, any analytics is only as good as the data that supplies it. And what we're beginning to see is that effective models, effective ways of understanding the pandemic and what will follow afterwards requires a rich interleaving of data that isn't just about the people we've met. It's not just about the potential transmission vectors. It's about the patterns of life, our mobility, our economic transactions. It's much more than just the simple epidemiological models that have actually been used to guide policy. I say simple, they're very sophisticated and complex in one sense, but the epidemiologists themselves recognize that to be effective in modeling and analyzing how we cope in the new world, we will need social data, we will need economic data overlaid. And how do we marshal all of that? How do we build a data infrastructure that is fit for purpose? that is a public as well as a private good. Can businesses share more of their data in this enterprise? And I think we will really have to have a much deeper conversation about where our data assets can be marshaled and brought together. And again, at the Open Data Institute and the Royal Society and at various places, there are efforts to understand what data can be made available to manage our response. Of course, as we move forward, as business is disrupted, we may see that what matters to people is going to change from sustainability to lifestyle, what people actually want, how we educate people, how we educate our children, how we receive our medical advice, how we interact with public and private services. How will we live with a virus that will also be with us for many years? So the challenges for businesses will be to understand how we respond in this context. Populations are going to be segmented because the sad fact is that this virus has very different effects on different segments of the population, different susceptibilities. Those, the elderly, those with comorbid conditions, even ethnic uh, inequalities that we're noticing. We have to understand how we can best protect individuals and groups and how we best service them. People have argued that this whole crisis is going to accelerate automation. Will that lead to an inevitable destruction of jobs? Actually, I think we'll see an unprecedented need to support our populations. We'll see that not least in areas such as social and elder care. There may be very significant transfers of the market, uh, of the labor force from areas to areas. These sorts of things are very people intensive, as is education. But we are noticing more automation. So if you think of areas like uh, drug discovery, uh, where the people are not as easily uh, available to find themselves in labs, they're doing a lot more robotic laboratory uh, drug development, for example. And we will see that in a whole range of manufacturing. We'll see it in food processing increasingly. Of course, the other thing we'll need to be thinking about is how do we plan for the next pandemic, the next, uh, the next challenge, the existential threats that, that, that we're looking at, global warming, um, keeping our carbon emissions managed, 
what are the new patterns of interaction and life that will emerge and how will business respond to these? All candidates for serious reappraisal. Or will we go back to business as usual? I suspect not entirely. AI is being used extensively right now for drug discovery, for actually managing the process we're all taking advantage of now, for internet traffic shaping, huge amounts of uh, advanced algorithmic processing and analytics to work out how to allocate the resources of the internet to provide the quality of services that we all now need. AI and robotics for remote operations I've already talked about, drug discovery to food processing and AI in education. Now, a thing that has been off the back of all of this has been a so-called renaissance of ethics. Uh, if you look around, there's something, I think that last count 150 uh, guidelines for uh, AI and data ethics. And when you actually look at what's in common across all of these ethical uh, frameworks, you, to see, you see differences uh, and the differences are interesting. Literally across the globe, people will have different responses to some of the ethical challenges. But you do see convergence. You see fundamental ethical principles around transparency, justice and fairness, responsibility, different uh, but important threads of privacy. And that's a question that we're going to be asking ourselves repeatedly. If we're going to apply these analytics, we need to be confident in the data. And can we be confident in the data when it comes to things such as bias? the intrinsic bias of the machine learning uh, data uh, that we put into our systems? Can we be confident about the nature of the conclusions that our systems provide? Are they providing adequate explanations? Ones that are in some sense amenable to uh, a sense of understanding by the person on the end of that decision. What sorts of redress do we have against these systems? Uh, do we understand that the ways in which the data is being processed isn't leading to um, various forms of market concentration or, or monopoly that are actually injurious to other entries into the marketplace from other young and innovative companies. So we're going to have a huge set of challenges ahead of us, I think, as we uh, look beyond the immediate challenge of the virus. Um, one of the things uh, that I'm excited about is work that we have here at Oxford um, on the ethics of AI. Indeed, we are just establishing our Institute of Ethics in AI as part of Stephen Schwartzman's investment in the uh, University of Oxford. And that gift has allowed us to set up an institute whose principal premise is to try and take AI ethics and put it into a similar level of importance and affect consequential impacts that we have for example, in, medical, uh, in medicine with medical ethics. What are the challenges that face us in an age of machine-based decision-making that are fundamentally affecting the ethical standards that we operate by? And much of this will come back to decisions that we make collectively and individually about the values that matter to us. And I think, again, we see this response in business as we grapple with the notion of what is it to be an equitable business? What is it to be a business that isn't just about generating pure shareholder value, but broader values, broader goods to the public interest, to 
the environment we live in and to the resources and responsibilities and sustainable uh, world that we need to live in. I think the virus has thrown those issues into very sharp relief. What is it to be human in the 21st century has been one of the overarching challenges of AI and the pandemic has thrown that even into sharper relief. The issue of community, areas of inequality, and the awareness of our humanity that cuts across these extraordinary moments. These are things that business have to take as seriously as every other part of our societal discourse. Thank you. Thanks, Sir Nigel. Some great remarks, Sarah. And I think, as, as you said, it's very important for businesses to be taking this very seriously at the moment. You, you talked at the start about living by data and how there's kind of extra, extraordinary demands on for data at the moment, particularly as we've seen around local lockdowns and different organizations needing access to certain amounts of data. One of the questions that we had through was there've been fears of, I guess, different levels of monitoring and surveillance as governments collect more data in the time of the, the COVID pandemic um, and, and businesses potentially as well, as we all sit in these kind of remote environments. Um, and, and how do you think, how ethical do you think this type of surveillance is? How, how and how do you think people should think about it and manage it and, and constantly be aware of it to ensure they they don't have any kind of future business risks? Can you hear me, uh, Harry? I think I've, I've lost the audio here. Can you hear me? I think you're on mute, said Agile. Can you hear me as our, as our technology? Okay, can you hear me? <laughs> I can. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I got the question. Um, I think I think there are there clearly these are ethical challenges. Yeah. Um, I think it's as much there's a point at which regulation also enters into the frame. So we if we if we enact powers where information is collected and used for a public purpose, we also have to have a sense of when some of those powers might be handed back. We will learn, I think, in the integration of a lot of our health data of real benefits. Um, we have access to some very powerful privacy enhancing technologies nowadays where the data can be kept uh, much more secure, can be anonymized. Uh, we can set up rules around the use of that data which permit its use only for particular purposes, so-called purpose-limited uh, data use and agreements. We have to be very agile in the agreements that are put forward and we have to have the ability to monitor and in some cases roll back. We can't have unbridled use of data without any restraint whatsoever. We see the, um, the hazard in that. Uh, and I think we also understand that people, when we survey people, we did a big survey with the Royal Society of Arts at the Open Data Institute, people's sense of, the, of, of their own data and their rights to it and their interest in it are very context specific. And they're very prepared to uh, let some of that um, uh, um, uh, information be used in one context and much more resistant in another. And I think we have to be working hard all the time to understand what the limits of that consensus are and not simply imagine because we can collect it all, we shall use it all. And we had another question on kind of just carrying on from that topic from someone who's worked, worked both in the NHS, Manikin Pillai here, on, he worked both in the NHS and the local authority. And he talked about how they didn't have enough fun, funds to maintain the current, current infrastructure and they set up in a third party data center. And he asked specifically kind of 
His question is around ownership, security, and governance of the data and the capacity to expand that storage as data volumes become large. So he, I guess he's pointing out, should the central government inject funds into national data centers? Um, yeah. And I think, I think the answer there is that there's, there's, there's quite an interesting argument, a discussion we've had around that. I think there, the issue of data sovereignty, the, the issue of having uh, access and control over data, um, the idea that um, it will always go into uh, the private marketplace. Um, I mean, one is who stores the data and how it's managed. Fundamentally, who has ownership and rights over that data? Again, important. We've seen already... Um, um, with the contracting out of, 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 of uh, testing services, uh, disquiet around whether or not those contracts actually kept the data in public ownership in the right kind of way. So I think these are, these are really We seem to have lost Sir Nigel there. Um, I think um, we, we can see you still Sir Nigel, but we've lost your Lost your voice. It may be that your headphones have died. No, we've still lost you. Sorry about this technical problem, everyone. Um, I think perhaps if, um, so Nigel, if you perhaps, um, switch to if you've got an inbuilt microphone on your laptop or machine um, that might be the easiest solution we unfortunately still can't hear um hear your voice um ladies and gentlemen where we are waiting um for this to be sorted out at the other end, we can pass some of these questions um, if we don't manage to resume audio onto Sir Nigel. What I would um, point out while we're just waiting for the audio to come back is and in, on the 15th of July, um, we have a um, another DTX talk coming up, which is with Phil Scully, the CIO of Costa Coffee. He's gonna be talking about um, unlocking customer value by quickly transforming to a digital business. So I would recommend that you do all join us for, for that talk as well um, from another tech leader. You will also all be hearing um, or receiving a survey um, following today's session just to get some of your thoughts and input into this. Um, and please do give us your kind of thoughts. Ah, we, it sounds like we've got some noise coming through from the other end. So hopefully we'll be having voice. Okay, are, ah, are, we, are, we, are we back? We're back, well done, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well done. So I think you Sorry, were kind of midstream on the answer to that question. The, the joys of home working in the modern world. It is indeed, it is indeed. Um, yeah, so the, the issue around um, who, who manages uh, sovereign data assets, um, whether, they, whether we need a, a national capability, I think there are, there are, there are I think the real issue is the nature of the contracts that are let and the really important fact that the key asset here, the data, the ability to exploit and repurpose the data for the public good, that has to be 
that has to be the paramount concern. Um, and I, I think uh, in, in health, we, as I say, we, we see examples where um, the commercial offerings are important, they, uh, in, in, but we've already seen the benefits of linking those data assets. If you look at a very interesting initiative called opensafety.org, Ben Goldacre and others have brought together very large scale amounts of data within firewalls, within the NHS data enclaves, but they've integrated patient records for the first time across more than half the, U, the English NHS data, 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 data patient sets. And they have revealed patterns that have really been powerful in forming uh, um, practice and behavior in, in, in the pandemic response. So uh, I, I think that's a really important question. And I think that there has been a move to contract many of these services out. Um, and I think that occasionally you have to say, is there an argument for a sovereign capability back in-house? We do that, for example, with some of our key other public services like the, the Weather Service, the Met Office. You know, we, have, we run national supercomputers and data collection centers because the data is important for, for actually uh, everything from, from civil to, to, to national defense. And we might make that argument in, in the health context too. Moving on to the, you mentioned about kind of social and economic data being overlaid and how do we marshal it and what's it, what happens for the public and private good. We had a question here from John Peterson, which kind of touched on that a little bit. He said, in a world where previously trivial, trivial facts become powerful data sets of real commercial and social value, what are the ethics of falsifying such trivial data? Does it become morally wrong to lie about your age when that data may drive clinical or, or government decisions? That's a great, great, great point. Um, and, and again, uh, part of that uh, response behaviourally from people has been a fear about over data collection, perhaps from platforms and other places. Um, there's also, of course, an active industry, as we know, in the promotion of, 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 of fake content. And that's really quite problematic. We're seeing, of course, um, quite a strong pushback. Um, and even the platforms now recognising that the quality and provenance of data is pretty important to their continued credibility. Uh, and the question, of course, when you enter into a uh, uh, arrangement with public services, we wouldn't necessarily think about falsifying that data. Uh, where the data is being picked up, as John points out, through, uh, through other secondary sources, uh, and that data may uh, not be as, um, as, as reliable as it might have been, there will be some real questions about qualification and triangulating that data. That's where, again, we, we, we need much more clarity, I think, around the onward transmission of data and the purposes for which that data is then used. And very often, um, the consumer or citizen is left in this kind of powerless position of thinking, well, you know, I don't know where it's going. I've done the deal. I've got the service. My data is being harvested. But, you know, and now I get a bunch of adverts on my, on my browser telling me about the latest thing I might or might not be interested in. We have got, I think, to have a much stronger sense of where data and its onward transmission is being used for significant purposes that are in the public realm and the public space. These issues of authenticity of the data and the quality of the data become really quite important. That's another aspect of our data infrastructure is guaranteeing the quality, the metadata about the information that's being used and for what purposes. Thanks. And we've got one, we've had a couple of people ask this question, Sir Nigel, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it together from, both from Ashley and Anwar. 
they're talking about, I guess, how how do we tackle such issues at a global level um, when it comes to data and AI? Do we need a Ashley asked, do we need a Geneva, Con, Geneva, Con, a Geneva Convention on this? And Anwar asked, how big is the challenge of maintaining robustness of data ethics in the context of interoperability across systems? I guess, especially spanning geographical systems and different legal frameworks. In fact, there's been a, um, just recently, mid-June, there was an announcement of the Global Partnership um, for AI, which brought together um, a bunch of um, G7 countries, well, about 15 countries who signed up to the issue of dealing with uh, exactly these issues around AI, uh, data governance, um, the ethical application of AI. People have talked about a, a digital uh, a Geneva Convention. I mean, one thing, of course, that has been common in all of these frameworks has been a principle of non-malfeasance, right? That you don't use your technology to do bad things. And yet, we know there is effectively an undeclared 24-7 assault on each other's national infrastructures, cyber, cyber attacks all the time. This is no way to behave in a sense. And I think that the, the sooner we try and regularize and organize these principles in multilateral uh, agreements, the better. So I think you're starting to see move towards that. The challenge will be some people see these, uh, these efforts as a way to for example, deal with perceived threats from Chinese AI or whatever, and um, we need these efforts to be genuinely multilateral. Great. And I think we've probably got time just for one last question on job scarcity, um, because I know that's a topic you talked about quite a bit. The, um, the, I mean, at the moment, obviously, there's a, there's a lot of pressures that companies are on uh, or under. Um, how do you think, I guess, job scarcity will impact businesses implementing further automation and AI? Do you think there'll be ethical considerations to that? And, and what would your, be your final piece of advice to businesses thinking about this at the moment and how they approach it? I mean, again, interestingly, when we had done the analysis, despite lots of scare stories before the pandemic around job destruction, all the evidence we, we could see was that there had been healthy levels of job creation across our eco economies. You know, humans are very uh, creative about finding things uh, for themselves to do for which they're then paid. You know, there are entire classes of profession that didn't exist decades ago, and there will be new ones doubtless going forward. And where the automation does come in and remove headcount, there is very often um, a corresponding um, generation of growth elsewhere. Now, historically, these have been around, uh, a lot of these have been around areas of content creation, they've been around areas like hospitality. Some of these will be really quite badly affected or are being badly affected by the, um, by the virus. I mean, the, the, the whole uh, tourist and travel uh, sector, which was a large job creation area. Uh, but on the other hand, content creation has arguably never been more, more, uh, more live and, and important. So I think it's, given that we're going to see some very significant uh, changes uh, through the immediate consequences of, of layoffs and uh, uh, re-equipping uh, re workforces in the face of the pandemic for, for, for the services that people really want, I think the, we'll see this continued pattern of augmentation of our economy with AI and automation, augmentation, but not wholesale replacement. And I, and I point to the fact, again, there will be whole areas of provision in, in social care, in, um, in health and well-being that will demand people. 
in just the whole area of mental well-being, for example, where this isn't about AI stepping in and plugging the gap. It's about people and mentorship and interaction. And I think we will see many areas where the shift will be into those uh, areas where it's a human to human uh, interaction fundamentally that's going to be one of the key features of our uh, coming out of the pandemic uh, lockdown. Thanks, Nigel. And I guess as an analogy with history as well, when the typewriter was replaced by the computer, what would happen to the people working in typewriting pools? And certainly there are many more jobs created. And Absolutely. There's always more jobs yeah, yeah, in the office, exactly. back office and front office. Yeah, exactly. So uh, thanks very much for joining us, everyone. Um, we're a little bit over time here. And um, I think Sir Nigel's given an excellent session. So thanks for putting all your questions through. Do Remember that you can hear more on all of these important topics at the Digital Transformation Expo taking place on the 30th of September and 1st of October, where, where Sir Nigel and many other excellent speakers from Lord Clement Jones to businesses such as Google will be tackling the topic of AI data and ethics. We'll be sending out the pre-recording after this session and the recording of the session. Thanks for joining us. And uh, Sir Nigel, thank you very much for joining us today. Goodbye, everyone.